like to tell you, if I, I think I've neglected to tell you up to now, that uh, my second doctorate, this PhD in communism, is on the reserve shelf. Have you all discovered that yet? So if there's anything that I go too fast on while here in class, you can easily look it up later. And regarding art, your area, I have a whole chap two chapters on art. One on communist art, one on a Christian critique of the communist theory of art with a Christian alternative. Also got one on nationality and on doctrine of science that you may just be interested in looking at, but you won't be examined on anything apart from what we've dealt with here in class. Now today we come to the communist doctrine of education. And it must be said that the communists have not reflected very much on the nature of education, other than to state that ideology is important and that it should be communicated particularly to the younger generation. Even under primitive communism, producers needed to raise structures in their imagination before erecting them in reality, and doubtless this must have implied the necessity of instruction in which practice and ideology were intimately interrelated. But an alienated society, after the, quote, fall, un unquote, of communist man, after the division of labor, the division between manual labor and mental labor, practice and ideology became di divorced from one another, and ideological instruction under the tutorship of the dominant class soon degenerated into a tool for the suppression of the other classes. Yet even under capitalism, the germs of the education of tomorrow are to be found in the factory system, said Marx. And utopian socialists like Fourier were approved by Engels for advocating the necessity of universal practical activity and variation of occupation. But as Lenin pointed out, Universal instruction herein first necessitates the education or indoctrination of Communist Party members in theory and practice so that they can successfully educate the masses in the latter stages of capitalism and then organize the socialist revolution. This is what your Weatherman faction of SDS are trying to do right now on American campuses. Now, after the revolution, on the basis of the positive educational gains acquired from the capitalist factory system and the Paris Commune of 1871, the communists energetically set about their enormous task of educating the still largely illiterate people. Under socialism, a massive educational drive is launched, both for adults but especially for the young. Private and church schools are abolished and all education is made public and universal and compulsory and co-educational and racially integrated. Guess who's coming for dinner? Education of the young is to be irreligious and is not the concern of the parents of the children but solely of society, which appoints dedicated communist teachers to give all the instruction, which must be critical, practical, and ideological. It must be critical in accordance with the dialectical principle, yes and no at the same time. It must be practical to inculcate the necessity of labor. It must be ideological to bring about the complete regeneration or communization of all society. Future communism 
after the demise of socialism will in fact be inaugurated as a result of communist education. Thenceforth, all education will, amongst other things, be both comprehensive and fully polytechnical, many-sided, trying to develop the student into all fields of endeavor, particularly scientific and technological endeavor. It will be both practical and theoretical, so that graduates may easily move from one branch of production to another. You can see how this ties up with the communist theory of the eschatology of labor, of uh, rotating uh, from one job to another quite easily. Such communist education will also be highly mechanized and will aim at the totalitarian perpetuation and constant improvement of a radically humanistic society where the very division of labor and permanent careers will be unknown. Now, how shall we evaluate this? Well, I think we must start off by admitting the partial credibility of this program. Communists are, I think, correct in, in as much as they try to combine physical and mental elements in education, to combine the theoretical and practical aspects of education as polytechnical education. Uh, it's laudable that they're in favor of furthering adult education, particularly amongst people who haven't had much schooling, and to try to improve society as a whole through the use of schools. Furthermore, however, we should see contradictions in the communist theory, such as the contradiction between Karl Marx's opposition to state schools and Lenin's advocacy of state schools, and also the opposition between Lenin's attempt to produce fitters and joiners in the state schools, on the one hand, which clashes with Lenin's in insistence on an all-round education. Lenin, you see, first stages of, of socialism made practical concessions to communist theory in order to produce as many fitters and joiners in as short a time possible as he could in order to deal with the practical situation in the Soviet Union at that stage. Also, in the third place, um, communists have run into real problems as they've tried to implement these aims of education. For example, they've been unable in the Soviet Union and in Red China to achieve Lenin's goal of a general compulsory education for all. Even 50 years after the revolution, today the Soviet Union is the 20th best educated country in the world. Not the, not the country which has the most education by any means. And this even 50 years after the communist revolution. And this is coupled with the inability of the Soviet Union to prosecute the theoretical goal of classless co-education. Right after the revolution, as a matter of policy, they thoroughly integrated the Soviet schools, not only racially and linguistically, at least in each area, but also sexually. Khrushchev, in the end, ended up in admitting that co-education of men and women was anti-educational because the teenage fellows were just looking at the teenage girls and vice versa. They, they weren't really getting on with the process of learning as much as they should have done. So he figured that unless they segregated the fellows from the gals, that uh, 
they weren't going to learn as effectively as they could and outstrip the United States. Looking at uh, communist education still more critically, I think we should point out that the Marxist definition of education is non-existent. These people have nowhere defined what education is or is supposed to be. Its doctrine of education under so-called primitive communism and under slavery, alienation, is completely inadequate. The Communist Party control of socialist schools destroys their essentially academic nature. If you are going to make the, a political party responsible for education, as in the Soviet Union, that educational system is never going to be critical of the party that controls it. It's going to be one-sided and slanted education. Uh, the socialistic attempt to combine schooling with practical labor is even detrimental to the latter. Here they have these poor kids, seven, eight, nine-year-old, uh, learning at school in the morning and then in the afternoon going out killing rats or uh, gathering food or cutting down corn simply so that the kid can get a practical application of what he's learnt in the morning theoretically. But a child of eight or nine or ten or even fourteen just doesn't kill rats or cut corn as effectively as does a person who's been trained to do this who's an adult. So even the practical labor that they get out of the kid is not qualitatively as good as it would be if they were to give this to adults. And Khrushchev himself has said that this is ridiculous and there needs to be a greater degree of theory in the communist schools than there was then. The socialistic state's replacement of private schools with compulsory education in state schools is essentially tyrannical. The costs of private schooling should be met by parents directly, not indirectly from taxed parents via the state as the disburser of the financial requirements of state schools alone. Parents, not the state, should provide for the food and clothing of the scholars. In all, Soviet education is not exactly a vast improvement on czarist education. As a matter of fact, uh, czarist education of males was perhaps a little better before the Soviet takeover than was socialist education of the male population up to about five years after the Soviet takeover. The solution for educationally incompetent parents is surely for these parents to entrust their children to teachers with their own life and world view, not to entrust their precious children to status teachers with a different view of life status teachers who may thereby even damage the integrity of the mind of the scholar. The socialistic extension of biased educational facilities only helps the state to extend its control over the population as a whole. Even totalitarian state control of all education will not guarantee that the despots will not misuse it in favor of their own children. Nothing stops the Communist Party bosses from dragging their own kids out of the public school and putting it in the special official school. This is in fact what they do. Forced integration of all scholars, irrespective of their race and language and religion, into one and the same school only creates more problems than it tries to solve. The Christian religion is banned from the socialist school only to make way for the advent of a communist religion. The avowed communist aim of teaching party politics in the schools 
only stifles the self-criticism it regards as desirable. The unified Soviet school is not the ideal in an increasingly complex and pluriform society where each group of people should be given the freedom to start its own school system as long as none of these school systems are threatening the security of the state. Polytechnical education, so-called, is too practical and hence not educational enough, and it's also too technical and hence not polytechnical enough. Socialist education explo exploits the youth and the scholars to render unpaid work for the state, and the kind of work they render is inadequate too, as I indicated previously. Socialistic education amounts to little more than political and technological indoctrination. Polytechnicality is doomed in an era of ever-increasing technical specialization, and socialist education is not polylateral or many-sided, but heavily weighed in favor of the natural and technical sciences at the expense of the humanitarian sciences. The communication of an exclusively communist ethic in the socialist schools is very difficult to reconcile with their supposedly polytechnical aims and the essentially mechanistic approach of the socialist school to its pupils as potential labor units, that's what it calls them, can only warp their personalities. Now then, what do we as Christians have to offer in the place of this communist school system with its obvious flaws? Education is derived from the Latin word educare, which means to educate, which is derived from a more re remote root educere, to lead out of. So education is ultimately the technique of leading out of people what God puts in them. And the other way round, the opposite technique of education of putting into people what God places outside of them and placing it inside of them. If you want details, you can look at my little book on reserve, A Christian, The Biblical Theory of Christian Education, this green book. I rather think it's on the reserve shelf. I'll go into a lot of details there. You won't be examining them, but just for your interest's sake. Now, education, the technique of pulling out of people what God has put in them and putting into people what God has put outside of them to be incorporated into their personalities must be rooted in the triune God. For not only is God the Son, the wisdom of God, eternally led out of or brought forth from the very bosom of God the Father, and not only does God the Spirit search all things, yea, even the very depths of God himself, but the triune God alone understands everything. For known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Acts 15 verse 18. Now that you can compare 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 9 and 10. Now when God created man in his image, he started to educate man, instructing man to subdue the earth in the great dominion charter, Genesis 1.28, God put man into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And God himself brought all the animals and the birds to Adam to see what Adam would call them. 
This was the first audio-visual means of education. In this way, the supreme teacher himself started educating the first man, Adam, into understanding all of God's works according to all of God's words, so that man and his descendants could thereby proceed to execute the Dominion Charter in all of its ramifications right down through world history up to the time of the end of time. And so you see, education is historically grounded and probably largely historically qualified. Although education does have a plastic, moldable, variable destination function, coextensive with its modally unqualifiable human act structure itself. And even though it also functions analogically in all its modal spheres, such as faith in education, love of education, educational significance, history of education, social education, the legal aspects of education, and what have you. Now Adam instructed his wife, and they both doubtless instructed their children. Parental instruction of their own children doubtless remained the pattern for many years after the fall, and was, of course, always of a fundamentally religious nature. Even as covenantal children were raised mindful of the covenantal past and obliged to dedicate themselves to the future unfolding of the covenant. Yet ultimately, special schools on the same religious basis as the faith of the parents were needed. So we read of the schools of the prophets in the time of Elijah and Elisha. These schools are on a religious basis were needed precisely in order to give ever increasingly specialized instruction to the scholars regarding details of their covenantal obligations. You see, man was destined to progress out of the Garden of Eden, which was his starting point, to fill the entire earth, which was his termination point. Man was destined by education and education to increase in the knowledge of the Lord and of the Lord's earth and ultimately to subject the whole earth and the whole sea and the whole sky and everything in them to the glory of God. Man was destined to see to it that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This then was, and quite frankly still is, the great goal of all Christian education. But this great goal of increasing in the knowledge of God and of subjecting the earth and the sea and the sky to God's glory demands, does it not, a number of lesser goals in order to achieve the great goal. And so, you see, the lesser and more immediate goals of Christian education must be to acquire knowledge, specialized knowledge of the earth and the sea and the sky, as well as of the God who created and redeemed and sustains the earth and the sea and the sky. In other words, to acquire knowledge of God and of all of God's cosmic creatures in all of God's cosmic creation. So, you see, Christian education demands instruction in theology, which teaches about the Creator and the Redeemer, in philosophy, which teaches about creation as a whole, and in the special sciences such as mathematics, 
natural sciences like physics and biology, history, geography, language and languages, including reading and writing, art, morality, etc., all of which each teach about a part of creation. In short, then, broad and comprehensive instruction should be given in every aspect of learning, instruction in all the main special sciences as lesser goals in order to accomplish the great goal of subjecting the whole of God's world to the glory of our covenantal God. So then, although the parents always remain the primary teachers of education, and although the church, as the institutional body of Christ, has its educational tasks too, specialized covenantal schools under the control of the covenantal academic community, subject to the approval of the church and the parents, were also started both in the Old and in the New Testament times. For example, companies of prophets were trained at special schools from the days of Samuel onwards, and the sons of the prophets sat at the feet of their instructor, Elisha. However, the important point to remember is that the school is not a creation ordinance, as is marriage and the family. The point is that the school's officials must pay due regard to the teachings of the Christian church, which is more ancient than the school, but more particularly still, to the even more ancient and fundamental covenantal family. So then, although we grant that over against the parents and over against the church, the school, the Christian school, does possess a relative sphere sovereignty in matters of practical administration. In other words, the teacher, the principal, can decide when to cane the child and how to mark the child, and this is no concern of the parent or of the, of the church. Nevertheless, the school must at all times be dependent for its educational philosophy and curriculum upon the wishes and the fiat and the world outlook of the Christian parents and of them alone. When the state starts dictating what must be taught in the school instead of the parents of the kids at that particular school, gentlemen, you have socialism and no longer a free school system. You see, in the last analysis, the school remains nothing but an auxiliary agent of the Christian parent who employs the school to teach his Christian child a Christian worldview according to his own parental wishes and not according to the wishes of a non-parental power such as an apostate, Christ-denying state as in Soviet communism. Now this mention of apostasy brings us to consider the influence of sin on education. As a result of the fall, man's mind has now become darkened by sin and is now totally incapable of understanding God's word correctly without the aid, pardon, it is totally incapable of understanding God's world correctly without the aid of God's word. So it is now necessary for us to hearken closely to the written word of God, even as Paul advised in his education of Timothy, Timothy, continue thou in the things that thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, 
which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that is, for indoctrination, for induction, for education, for education, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 2 Tim 3:15 and 16. We are thus to be thoroughly furnished, not merely unto some good works, not just unto the wonderful work of saving souls, important though it is, but we are to be furnished unto all good works. Having once been thoroughly furnished unto the good work of saving the soul, we must then also be thoroughly furnished by the Holy Scriptures to save the body and also to save the whole world with all of its fullness and everything which God put in it to dominate God's world to his glory which was what God created man to do originally before the fall. Scripture is therefore given by inspiration of God so that the fallen yet redeemed man of God may be perfect even as Adam was perfect before the fall though subject to ever increasing growth. Scripture is given so that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good works even as the man and woman of God were thoroughly furnished unto all good works in the state of rectitude, furnished unto their lofty and comprehensive goal of subjecting the whole earth and the whole sea and the whole sky, thoroughly furnished unto all good works to the glory of God. Therefore, the goal of all Christian education can only be to do all of these things according to our individual special gifts, to be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Yes, even in our daily, ordinary, so-called secular work for the Lord, for our ordinary work that we do each day in our office or in our kitchen, is still work in the Lord's world and should therefore be done to His glory. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now then, since the fall of man, all people and all children, even Christian people and Christian children, that is to say, children born of Christian parents, are conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity even before their birth, Psalm 51, so that they cannot even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again from above. 1 Corinthians 7.14 teaches us, as I was just trying to explain to someone outside right before this class started, that children conceived and born of at least one Christian parent are holy seed, holy children. They are not unclean children, as are the children of unbelievers, according to God's most holy word. Now, I'm not arguing that all children born of unbelieving parents are lost, but I am saying that they're unclean, because this is what God says about them. Neither am I arguing that every child that is born of at least one believing parent, and preferably two believing parents, is a saved child. Because we have the case of Esau, we have the case of Ishmael, who when they grew up evidenced that they were of the children of the devil. We even have the case of Cain, 
child of two parents that were saved. But I'm saying this, that God calls those children that are born of at least one believing parent and that die in their infancy holy children. We read that before the Exodus, the Lord doth put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. That God promised that he would send the angel of death over the land of Egypt and that he would take the life of every firstborn child unless the blood of the Passover lamb was painted on the lintels of each house. So God's word says that children born inside the covenant of grace are holy and not unclean. And what God hath cleansed and made holy, let no man call unclean. Yet nevertheless, it is still up to the Christian parents to point to the blood of the Lamb across the lintel of their house, as did the covenantal parents of old, so that God will put a difference between their children and the children of the heathen when God passes through the land and smites all the firstborn and executes judgment against all of the gods of the Egyptians. Even as this divine threat was duly carried out in Egypt in accordance with God's perfect punitive justice. And yet, the Lord then spared his covenantal people and their children, not because those children were not born in sin and iniquity, they were, but only because the blood of the Lamb was painted on the doorpost by their parents, and because they were born under or lived under covenantal privileges living under the blood of the Lamb sprinkled on the lintels of their houses. So then, on the one hand we see that Christian children, the principal subjects of Christian education, are to be regarded as sinners and by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, as are all children. For it is not possible that a clean one comes out of an unclean one, no, not one. But on the other hand, by virtue of the covenant, Christian children, unlike non-Christian children, are also to be regarded by grace as saved sinners. Otherwise, if the Christian children were born of two unbelieving parents, the children would then be unclean. But now, because the children have at least one believing parent, they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14 Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thine house. Acts 16.31 Unless and until the contrary is clearly evidenced in the later lives of these covenant children, as in the sad cases of Cain and Esau, they are to be regarded as saved by virtue of their covenantal position from birth, and indeed even from their conception. Now this difference which God puts between the believers and their children on the one hand and the unbelievers and their children on the other hand is in our opinion, and here the Baptist present must forgive me of my Presbyterianism, is in our opinion visibly demonstrated in holy baptism. For believers are commanded to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins and assured that they shall then receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise comes to you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Acts 2, 38 and 39. Now this does not mean that the adult believer or his infant child become holy in baptism. To the contrary, 
both adult believers and their children are baptized because they already appear to be holy before their baptism. And it is only for this reason that they are entitled to receive holy baptism. And so the children of believers in Christ are in an entirely different category than are the children of unbelievers. Therefore, and you dear Baptist brethren present, if there be any, forgive me for saying this, therefore the unbaptized children of Baptist believers are holy too, and should, in my opinion, accordingly receive baptism. For all the children of all believers, be they Baptists or Presbyterians, are born inside of the covenant, whereas the children of unbelievers are not. All the children of all believers are, therefore, in my opinion, entitled to receive the initiatory sacrament of the covenant, holy baptism. But the children of unbelievers are not entitled to receive baptism. And this, I feel, is so even in respect of a child of mixed parentage. By that I mean where the husband is an unbeliever and only the wife is a believer, or the other way round. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. 1 Corinthians 7.14 And you say, well, what's that got to do with education and communism? Well, I think it all throws very much light on the subjects of Christian education. For you see, the subjects of Christian education are both the actual recipients and the intended recipients of Christian baptism namely the believers and their children, and they alone, in contradistinction to the unbelievers and their children. And what has been said of the education of Christian children also holds true of their further education through Christian youth and into the maturity of Christian adulthood. The whole point of Christian education, then, is that God puts a difference between the Egyptians and their children outside of the covenant and the Israelites and their children inside the covenant. A difference which stems all the way back from the fall of man, when God addressed himself to the devil and said that he would put enmity between the seed of the devil outside of the covenant on the one hand, and the seed of the woman inside the covenant on the other hand. So God put enmity between the devil and the Savior, and between the world and the covenanters. It is not, gentlemen, that the covenanters desire to be geographically or educationally separated from non-covenanters into different schools. Not at all. To the contrary, Christ in the Great Commission has commanded his covenanting children to go and teach all nations, literally, to turn all nations into his disciples, mathein pantas tus ethnus, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. But, if the non-covenanters refuse to submit their children to covenantal education, let the non-covenanters separate from the covenanters, and let each group then form separate schools. But let not the covenanters compromise their schools just for the sake of salving the guilty consciences of those non-covenanters whose children may attend the covenantal school if they so wish. Actually, the key to this kind of situation is given in the book of Acts, Acts 19. When St. Paul arrived in Ephesus, he went into the synagogue 
and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of that way before the multitude, Paul departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing or teaching daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now what does that mean? That means you start with the inclusivistic state school system, like Paul did in the synagogue, and you exalt the Lord Jesus Christ like you know how. And if the school, state school system doesn't like it and forbids you from reading the Bible and praying, then you get out of the state school system and you start your own separated Christian school system like the Apostle Paul did in Acts 19. But one thing you don't do, whether you're in the state school or in the so-called Christian private school, you do not compromise one inch the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its universal ramifications that you don't do. So then, all of the above presupposes a Christian school for Christian children as opposed to the inclusivistic state schools or community schools of socialist Russia or even of the largely humanistic West. For even the latter schools do not treat our covenantal children as the children of God which they are but rather treat them as the children of the nation or as the children of the world, which they are not primarily. It is not for the state to dictate policy in the Christian school. It is for the Christian parent to dictate the school policy. All socialistic and communistic systems of state control of schools are unbiblical. And the most effective way to resist this is to establish Christian schools and Christian parent-teacher associations. The present state schools in most countries of the world, in spite of their erudition and financial resources, are fundamentally incapable of providing a truly Christian education for our children, because they differ from us, even on the most fundamental matters. They do not agree with us as to what education is, or as to who we're trying to educate, for they do not recognize that our children are essentially different from the children of the non-believers. This brings us to consider briefly the state as the teacher of Christian education. Now in principle the state as a law enforcing body was instituted by God in the words Genesis 9 Surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it and at the hand of man at the hand of every man's brother will I require the life of man Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man, that is, by the state as the God-ordained agent of man, shall man's blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. Now from this text, it is perfectly clear that the state's essential calling is to protect man against wild beasts and human murderers, and to use force to attain this end. The state is God's minister empowered by God to raise tributes and dues and rates and taxes. Romans 13. For the purpose of preserving law and order, not for the purpose of sponsoring schools. However, 
when the state goes beyond this function of preserving law and order, as it is doing in practically every country of the world today, when the state, in addition to raising taxes, not merely for maintaining law and order, but also for educational purposes, pension purposes, regulating commerce, forcing people to attend its own state-controlled schools, there I say the state is acting ultra vires beyond its God-given task. Only in exceptional circumstances, where law and order which the state must regulate are being threatened by neglected and uneducated non-Christian children and youths, or even by Christian youths as a result of the neglect of the church and of the Christian parents to educate their own children themselves, which neglect is leading to a problem of juvenile delinquency which is disturbing law and order, only there, I say, does the state have an exceptional and a temporary calling to start its own state schools. But the accent is on the word temporary until both the non-Christian parents on the one hand and the Christian parents on the other hand start operating their separate schools satisfactorily, after which the state school should be done away with or at least regarded as a non-compulsory anomaly, while the school as such is restored to the non-Christian parents on the one hand, and especially to the Christian parents on the other hand. Whereas then the state does have a divine calling to see to it that nothing treasonable or seditious, nothing which disturbs law and order, nothing contrary to public morality is being taught in the school, even in the private Christian school, the Bible knows nothing of the state's essential duty to promote education directly as a state-planned and state-controlled enterprise. The role which the state, at the expense of the parents, has permanently and illegally arrogated to itself today, practically throughout the entire world, is quite unscriptural. One can be thankful for some parochial schools or some systems of Christian public schools in South Africa, all our public schools have to be Christian by law and a teacher can get thrown out if he teaches anything in the state school country to Christianity but even this is not strictly speaking the correct situation because the school should be operated by the parents or a parent controlled Christian community and not by the state, not even by the Christian state because if such a school controlling and necessarily coercive Christian state degenerates, it is far harder to promote Christian education than where the school controlling but non-coercive Christian community degenerates, and in a highly degenerated non-Christian society where covenant children, then the minority, are forced to attend the state school and to associate with an overwhelming majority of children of unbelievers and are taught by the non-Christian teachers employed by an indifferent or even a hostile state which knows nothing about the true Christian goal of education, the situation is very serious indeed. Even though even such a state is still God's minister, it does not realize this and it does not value the word of God. And so true education cannot possibly come into its own in such a situation. The very position of such a state-controlled school is an infringement of the rights of the Christian parents 
to the extent that they cannot live out their baptismal vows which the parents undertook and which the local church of Christ undertook too to raise that baptized child or amongst the Baptists that dedicated child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And so the state school in such a situation is nothing less than a dire peril to the very continued existence of the covenant of grace as such. So then, whereas the state does have a subsidiary role in Christian education, the real role of the teacher of such education should be played not by the state but by the Christian school and to a lesser extent by the Christian church. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Both the, the Christian school controlled by the parents and the Christian church doing the bidding of and acting as the agent of the Christian parent under the triune God of Christianity who alone is the supreme educator. For in the words of the prophet Isaiah, all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. The Christian's call to develop Christian education in eschatological perspective then is like St. Paul's to establish separate Christian schools either with or without financial assistance from the government but if the Christian school takes financial assistance from the government there must be no strings attached so that the school may be pressured by the state into adopting a status program. But with or without financial assistance from the government, the Christian school must maintain its autonomy over against the government, over against the state. The Christian school must train its scholars more and more, each in accordance with their own God-given personality, making each student conscious of his own God-given cultural heritage and equipping and encouraging him to go and help subdue the earth and the sea and the sky only to the glory of the triune God until the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. With their radically humanistic system of education, communists have turned unto me the back and not the face. Though I taught them rising up early and teaching them, yet they have not hearkened to receive instruction. As such, communist education has no future. For the future belongs to Christian education and looks forward to the day when Christians shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So then, Christian education is diametrically opposed to Marxist education. Christian education is anchored in the triune God. It is comprehensive, embracing all fields of endeavor, instead of narrowly materialistic and socialistic. Christian education is broadly cultural, instead of just narrowly technological. Christian education is subject to parental control rather than divorced therefrom. Christian education is opposed to statism rather than dependent thereon. Christian education is taught by Christian teachers, not by communist lackeys. Christian education is directed to the glory of the triune God rather than to the exaltation of fallen man. 
Hear, ye children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. Forsake ye not my law, for I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also, and said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not. Neither decline the words of my mouth, forsake her not, and she shall preserve thee. Love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. Proverbs 4, 1 through 7. Study to show thyself approved unto God, as workmen who need not stand ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What is that? 2 Tim 2.15, isn't it? Or 1 Tim 2.15? Ephesians 6, verse 4. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but you bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are there any questions? Alrighty. Class is dismissed. There is a question. The father is, is held responsible by Almighty God for the instruction of his child. Therefore, if the father doesn't have enough time or knowledge to teach the child in every area from a Christian perspective as the father would like to be able to do, the father appoints a Christian teacher as his deputy together with other Christian fathers to do the job. And the moment this community of Christian fathers don't like what the so-called Christian teacher is doing, they withdraw their child from his services or they replace that so-called Christian teacher with a better Christian teacher. And the state has got nothing to do with it except inasmuch as law and order is being disturbed by delinquents being produced. It's a matter of also education then effectively or could effectively deny the right of the parents to bring up their child, their child. Yes, sir, I believe that's correct. Uh, unless the state can prove that parents are turning their kids into delinquents by the parents themselves, not directly educating their own children or indirectly by appointing teachers that the parents approve of to do the job, the state has got no business getting involved in education whatsoever. I know this is an unpopular view, but it is the teaching of the Word of God, I think. All right, we'll see you some later. Thank you, gentlemen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb 
at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.